Hello, language lovers, and welcome to episode three, season two of Life in a Second Language with your host, me, Spring Gay. On this podcast, I talk to creative people from all over the world about what it's like living, loving, working, studying, even raising a family in a second language, sometimes, oftentimes, in adult language. So this podcast may not always be appropriate for young ears, just saying. Now, if you speak two or more languages, hopefully you can relate to what we get into on this podcast, or if you're thinking about dabbling in a foreign language for the very first time in your entire life, we can give you a hint as to what you may be in for and let you know of some opportunities that you did not know existed. This week, my computer has decided to have a meltdown, so I haven't studied very much Japanese this week. Ugh, man, I feel like my weekly Japanese language updates are now just turning into weekly excuses for me to not study Japanese. But you know what? I'm a grown-ass adult, and I can do whatever the hell I want. And you know what? I don't want to study this week, because it's Halloween, which means right now there's a child under the age of 10 in Japan dressed just like a KKK member, thinking they're a ghost because their mother thought a pillowcase is easier on the neck. She's right, and I'm not going to say how I know that, but it just makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside knowing that there's a group of small children who have no idea they're reenacting a Lenny Bruce comedy album cover. Today's guest is a very good friend of mine and one of the first people I met in Japan. Bilingual juggler, one of the pioneers of modern street performing in Japan as we know it. He's a film producer, he was the location manager for The Last Samurai movie, production assistant for Amazon's recent Making the Cut series. Uh, he worked as a liaison during the Rugby Cup in Japan and has been doing the same for Tokyo Olympics until recently for obvious and allegedly bat-related pandemics. Oh, and he's an avid whitewater rafter as well. Brian has lived and toured all over Japan for over 30 years and is one of the smartest, most interesting people I know. A jack of all trades. He's learned to make the most out of living abroad and has some incredible stories that I can't wait for you to hear. Brian marches to the beat of his own taiko and is a great example of someone who has learned when it's best to assimilate to the culture around you and when it's probably better to buck the system through a lot of trial and hilarious error. Brian's not super active on social media uh, or the internet in English, but if you speak Japanese, just Google Brian Horusu, Genojin, or Dairoge. A lot of stuff pops up. Even if you don't speak Japanese, uh, just Google Brian Holes Juggler, Japan, and he has quite a few videos on YouTube where you can watch him do a street show in Osaka dialect Japanese, which is pretty special. Uh, his YouTube handle is Juggling Riverboy. I really, really hope you. You have as much fun as I did during this interview. I can't wait for you to hear it. Now it's time for our interview with the amazing Brian Hulse. Ah, hello and welcome to another episode of Life in a Second Language with Spring Day. And today I'm so excited for you to meet my friend, entrepreneur, juggler, just performer extraordinaire. Please welcome to the show, Brian Hulse. Hello, everyone. This is Brian Hulse coming to you 
Osaka, Japan. I'm so glad you agreed to do this show. I'm flattered that you invited me to share my language experiences with you and your listeners. Gosh, we've known each other for a really long time. 20 years, maybe? At least 20 years. Can you believe it was 20 years ago that we were shooting at cockroaches with a nail gun? Yeah, the good old days of cockroach hunting in Tokyo. (laughs) All right, well, we better get this interview started. Uh, What is your native language and what other languages do you speak? I'm from the United States. My native language is English with a Midwestern accent. I'm from Indiana. I studied French in high school, but do not really speak it. I learned Japanese at the age of 20, which was 30 years ago, 32 years ago. I've been in Japan pretty much for the past 30 years, living and working in Japanese and English. And did you study Japanese in a classroom context? I did. I worked in Japan for three months without speaking Japanese, studying phrases that I needed for work. Went back to Indiana, enrolled in Japanese course at Indiana University, studied for a year as a freshman at Indiana University in a language class. I came to Japan as an exchange student for an intensive language program at a university in Nagoya. Hours of class every morning, Monday through Friday, in the afternoon, twice a week, had a language lab for two hours or something, translation classes in the afternoon, as well as history and culture classes. Why did you initially go to Japan? In Japan, as a performer, I do a comedy juggling show, street performing style comedy juggling show, three-month contract for a 23-city tour, doing about 15 shows a week. Uh, Yeah, about 15 shows a week, traveling on the day off. It was for a big expo with about... 150 people on staff, and we all traveled around, stayed in hotels, put the uh, the show on, the expo on in different cities, 23 different cities. And when you did that expo, that expo was in English, right? No, I would do my show, attempt to do my show in Japanese. How was that? It was an incredible challenge. It was very frustrating because my show is very language-based. Mm-hmm. So I had done shows in Europe in French and in German, and I would learn enough of the language to get through the show mm-hmm. and it worked in Europe. I could mm-hmm. evoke emotional responses that I expected to from my audience and they seemed to enjoy it. Whereas in Japan, applying the same method did not really evoke the emotional responses to the level that I had hoped for. So I thought I was very frustrated in the beginning and realized that it was not just a language barrier, but there were many cultural hurdles to overcome in order to entertain the Japanese audience. And people who I would ask, bilingual staff or translators from the event that I was working on, they really didn't have the answers to the questions I was asking. Like, why are these people on TV able to get their audience to laugh? What are they saying? Why is it funny? Why can't you make the stuff I say in English that's funny, funny in Japanese? And Mm. it didn't really work like I had hoped for. Audiences seemed to enjoy the show and it seemed good enough. And that's what I was told by my employer. It's good enough. Don't worry. Just take your money and go home. Everyone who comes to Japan experiences this. Don't worry about it. But I thought, and then there were other things that I was told that puzzled me. A non-Japanese person will never be funny in in Japan. What you want to do in Japan will never happen. 
It's impossible. It never has happened and it never will. The Japanese are special. We're unique. And people would say this with a straight face. And I was like, really? You believe that? That you're somehow totally different than every other country in the world? And that people who are not from your country are unable to make you laugh? And I thought, really? Wow, okay. What if I learn the language? So I kind of took it and I thought, this is a real challenge. I want to figure out how to make these people laugh. Mm-hmm. So I'll learn the language. So I left Japan after three months and went to school and started studying the language and studied for two years in Japan and slowly came to realize that all of those people who told me that it was impossible were 100% correct. <laughs> these are a very unique group of people. And it is impossible to make them laugh like it is done in other countries. But you can do it in, in the Japanese way. And mm-hmm. upon doing that, you can no longer make people laugh in your own language. And 30 years later, you're still here, bald, in- completely hopeless because of COVID. Should have stayed in Indiana. <laughs> you do edit these, don't you? I do, and I will. Please do. Your story is fascinating. So basically, you got challenged because someone told you it couldn't happen. And you're like, well, I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to learn this language. I'm going to learn how to make people laugh. I thought there were several layers to the desire to learn Japanese. One was artistically, I was frustrated and thought, oh, I really wish I could perform at the same level in Japan that I had in other countries Mm -hmm. and in other languages. Then there was the challenge of, oh, don't worry about it. You can't do it. And I thought, oh, well, wouldn't it be cool to do something that people think can't be done? And then I thought, oh, well, if I do what others think can't be done, then there'll be unlimited opportunities for doing things in Japan. It'll open up many opportunities, I thought. There was also, as a performer in English... I found it very challenging to come up with new material that other people had not come up with. And to be original in English as a comedian or as a comedy variety performer, I found really challenging. And I thought, oh, instead of being really creative in English, if I just learn Japanese, then I can come up with material in Japanese that nobody's ever come up with before because nobody's tried. That was so several layers of motivation for learning Japanese. And did you find anyone else trying to do anything similar to what you were doing? When I first came here in 1989, there were a couple other variety performers, a magician and a juggler, a magician from the United States named David Ramsey, and a juggler from Scandinavia, from uh, Finland or Denmark, Niels Pohl. And they had been coming to Japan and performing this Western street performing show. And they did some comedy, but they were more visual based and get away with not having a constant stream of patter. And they didn't seem as motivated to master the language. I wanted to be able to improvise with the audience. I wanted to be able to act in the moment and be spontaneous I wanted to be able to comment on things that were going on that day in the news. I wanted to be basically free to communicate without this language barrier. I didn't just want to have a script of jokes that I regurgitated. And 
so in the beginning, I didn't really meet others who were studying Japanese to be comedians. So I guess the answer to your question is no, not really. What was the most effective way for you to learn Japanese in your language journey? Getting out there and speaking, doing it. So I would study in class. We'd learn new grammar patterns or something, new vocabulary. And then I would try to incorporate those new grammar patterns into my shtick, into my routine. And then I would go out into the street and street perform on the weekend and just talk all day. I'd be out in the street doing shows, gather around folks, showtime, blah, 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 blah. And I would do this, it started off about 15 minute long show. And then, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes became more and more fluid, fluent through doing the show. I found that to be the most effective way. And how did the tone of your show change? Because you said that you learned how to make Japanese people laugh, but then uh, you said something really interesting before. You said you could make Japanese people laugh, but you could no longer make native English speakers laugh. What was that switch? Um, the grammar structure of Japanese and the grammar structure of English are, are different in that the verb in Japanese comes at the end of a sentence. So... The whole setup, the whole timing, the whole approach to creating material in Japanese is different than creating material in English. The honorifics in Japanese, the level of politeness in Japanese are non-existent in English. So there's potential for humor in playing with the status of language and the and playing off the expectations of people as a Caucasian person in Japan speaking Japanese. There's that there's already this element of surprise. And then you're just dealing with so many different variables that aren't present in performing in English or speaking in English. And then the whole approach to comedy in Japan is different than that, what I was used to in the United States. The social taboos in Japan are different than the social taboos in, in America. The things that you can talk, you can talk about and evoke laughter in the United States is not necessarily the same kind of topics that you can talk about and evoke laughter in Japan. Sarcasm is not a big thing in Japan. Irony is not a big thing in Japan. Attacking groups or attacking individuals, not a big thing in Japan. You want to be more making fun of yourself as opposed to making fun of others is very entertaining for the Japanese. If you speak out against the Japanese, then they, not all the time, but there's a high risk of alienating yourself from the audience. Or being looked at as, oh, you don't understand Japan. We're not going to get angry with you on the surface. We'll act like we don't care. Because how would you know you're not one of us? So we don't want to avoid conflict and we'll just smile and say, oh, 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 yeah, thank you for coming and laugh nervously. A lot of people interpret as, oh, they like me. They're laughing. It's like, no, they're trying to avoid conflict. Instead of smacking you upside the head and telling you to get out, they're chuckling, they're laughing and thinking, oh, I wish this guy would just leave. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're so funny. <laughs> White man, funny. <laughs> Time to go. <laughs> no? oh, yeah, have some more tea. Huge cultural differences, not just the linguistic difference. In adapting to that, you kind of lose your edge. I lost my edge in English. Or I thought to myself, oh, the approach that I had taken 
up until then in English, it wasn't um, as funny to me anymore. And it's hard to make people laugh if you don't think it's funny. And they're really not going to think it's funny. So do you feel that speaking Japanese as well as you do has changed your personality? I think it has. I think living in Japan and in the beginning, mm-hmm. I hadn't realized it yet. I was learning the language and trying to translate what I had done up until then and force it onto the Japanese, which it seemed like it was working because people were gathering around and watching me and I was making money, which seemed like the ultimate goal. If I'm making money, then I must be doing something right. Of course, that's what crack dealers and strippers say. (laughs) My outlook slowly changed. There's a saying in Japan, the nail that stands up gets pounded down. And, you know, conformity is respected more than individuality. And you should just do what you're supposed to do and not buck the system. So as I was trying to open Japan up to the idea of street performing and the idea of tipping instead of being paid. There was a lot of conflict with what I was trying to do. And that led to a lot of arguments and a lot of conflict. After being here for a while, I started to understand that the way they speak in Japanese, the approach to conflict, it definitely did have an effect on my personal development. And I'm a loser now. <laughs> I didn't get pounded down. I, I fell out of the hole and rolled into the ditch. And I'm sitting there rusting. And the weeds are overgrowing. And I'm disappearing in the muck. But I never got pounded down. I do know that you made an interesting linguistic choice in that you chose to learn Osaka Ben or Osaka dialect. Did you decide to learn the dialect, which is famous for where all the comedians speak? And I guess the only equivalent in English would be, say, like a, a New York accent or a Boston accent. as It's kind of funny to the rest of the country because it just seems kind of comical and cartoonish. The grammar is affected. Sometimes words are completely different and things like that. Was that a choice you made from the beginning? My version of Japanese, the dialect of Japanese that I speak is called uh, Osaka-ben, which is very unique compared to the standard Japanese that is spoken on TV or up in Tokyo. And as you mentioned, it's like maybe a Bostonian accent or a New York Bronx accent or maybe a Chicago kind of this more of a street feel Mm. than a proper broadcast version of the language feel. And Osaka is famous for a style of comedy called Manzai, which is the straight man, funny man duo doing stand-up comedy and sketch comedy. And they play off each other kind of like an Abbott and Costello kind of feel. And the Yoshimoto company based in Osaka, they've been kingpins in the entertainment industry for about 150 years. And I did not purposely seek out Osaka or Osaka dialect. It just kind of happened that my university was an hour away from Osaka and I guess two hours away from Tokyo and an hour away from Osaka. I was learning in Nagoya, which also has a unique dialect, but it's not really funny or thought of as unique for entertainers. I just happened to be working in Osaka 
I just happened to fall in with some guys who hooked me up with Yoshimoto and sent me on a tour with some of the most famous comedians in Japan. Over a period of two years, I worked with these guys. Maybe I worked with the Yoshimoto group about 50 times in two years. And we'd be traveling on a bus together. We'd be in the theater together. We'd be backstage together. And all the time, I could hear these guys just talking and talking. And they're always talking. Hey, hello. You know, it's like they're playing cards in the dressing room. And while they're playing cards, they're talking about going to the pachinko parlor, which pachinko is like uh, playing slot machines or something. It's kind of mm-hmm. a combination of a pinball machine and a slot machine. And it's called pachinko. For some reason, Yoshimoto comedians love to play cards and they love to play pachinko and they sit around in between shows talking and they're always talking. And they, they got, you know, hey, you know, I, they're always just something going on. You know, hey, hey, you know, get out of my way. I'm walking here. Hey, hey, yeah, you know, hey, you know, lose some money again. I want some money. Hey, you see that cute girl? I saw her. Yeah. Oh, no, no, that's my sister. Oh, hey, hey. So all this time and then backstage, you could hear the play through the speakers. And it's all, you know, set up, set up, punchline, set up, set up, punchline. So I think through osmosis, I started hearing Osaka dialect around me and started living in Osaka and my show developed into Osaka, Osaka dialect. I would go back and visit my friends in Nagoya a year or two after moving to Osaka. Mm-hmm. And my friends from university said, oh my gosh, Brian, you're Japanese. Is Osaka dialect? And I was like, whoa, you sound like, what's up with your Japanese country bumpkin from Nagoya? And they're like, we talk like we always have. I said, well, I never noticed it before. But you talk funny. And they'd be like, no, you talk funny. And I'm like, no, this is how I, everybody around, this is how we talk. I'm speaking Japanese. And like, no, you're speaking Osaka dialect. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, forget about it. So I was kind of like hanging out with the, in retrospect, it was like hanging out with the goons in Vegas with the, the mobsters in the 60s. So I picked up on that kind of dialect. And it, it's funny. It works. It's direct. It's much more communicative than than the standard Tokyo dialect. Because I speak Osaka dialect and I'm this loudmouth American, I can get away with saying stuff that a Japanese person could never get away with saying, which also opened opportunities to create humor and then combine Osaka dialect with really polite Japanese sayings. And you can get all of this, these different layers of language kind of Mm -hmm. thrown together it's quite fun now i know you've been interviewed on national japanese tv in japanese were you able to riff and improvise the way you wanted to in those situations that's a tough question i'm able to but do i no why not because and i say this because there was one time that i did riff I, I really went after some people. I was able to say exactly what I wanted to say. What was the context? The context was my fiance and I were at a premiere of a movie, a movie premiere, and she was a, a celebrity actress. We were the celebrity couple on the red carpet. They wanted to do a fashion check. And, they, and we were like, oh, we really don't want to do it because you'll just start asking personal questions and asking us when we're going to get married and blah, blah, blah. So we'd rather not. And we were told, oh, no, we will not ask any personal questions. If they ask personal questions, I'll step in and stop it, said the publicist who had organized the press conference or whatever it was. 
So the interview begins, and then they slowly twist the questions back to our personal lives. And I look off to have the publicist step in to end the interview or to intervene. They ignored us. We made eye contact, and the woman looked down at her feet purposely, like, oh. So I thought, okay, well, hey, you want to push the button? Then let's play the game. So I, I said, you know, I really don't understand why you keep veering back away from the purpose that we're here, which is to talk about this movie. The movie was The Green Mile. So we're here to talk about The Green Mile, not about our personal life. How would you like it if I asked you about your personal life? Give me your microphone. So I took the microphone away and I said, hey, welcome to the Tokyo Forum. Here we are at the premiere of The Green Mile, which we're using to pry personal information out of people by telling them we want to talk about their fashion choices for the night. And here we are with a reporter from Fuji TV. You might recognize her because you see her on TV all the time, but you don't really know anything about her. Let's find out. Hi, you're working late tonight. How do you know your boyfriend isn't cheating on you? And I put the microphone in her face and she said, oh, I'm happily married. I said, oh, well, you say you're happily married, but how do you know when you're working late like this that your husband isn't running around with a secretary or, or the neighbor or your sister? Oh, I'm happily married. I know you said that twice that you're happily married, but why should we, the people of Japan, believe you when you say things about your personal life when you will not believe Brian or Fumie when they talk about their personal life? On this for about five minutes, uh-huh. interviewing these three reporters and riffing with the camera. I, I just went off doing to them what they were doing to us. I don't know where it came from, but it was an endless stream, and I just did it. And it was all in Japanese, and banded up, boom, and it was like, and that's it for Brian and Fouye. Good night, and walked off. What happened after that? The next day, I was made out to be a monster. Like, I lost it. You know, Starlet's fiancé loses the plot. I was painted to be um, completely out of line, which I guess I was. Hearing your side of the story, it sounds like you were the hero of the night. I won the battle, but I lost the war. And then people, they're like, oh, you know, don't push his button or he will destroy you. He's uncontrollable, which I did not say anything, did not make any personal attacks. Basically, I spoke out against the paparazzi, the manipulative style of media that they were involved with. And I guess that's why famous people just smile when they're on. They never say anything. Did you think I shouldn't riff the way I want to? Yeah, exactly. So your question was, was I able to riff like I wanted to? I have the ability to do it, but I've learned that it's probably not a good idea. A couple years later, or not even, I don't know, a year or so later, I was invited to be on one of the Who's Who talk shows in Japan. Kind of like the equivalent of being on the David Letterman show or Johnny Carson in mm-hmm. the United States. What's the equivalent in the UK? Probably the Graham Norton show. So kind of like being on the Graham Norton show of Japan. A couple of weeks before that, there's a Japanese comedian who works in English named Zenjiro. And Zenjiro had asked a few of us to help him go over his material that he was going to be doing in English in New York at a comedy contest or something. So after helping Zenjiro with his, his material, a couple of weeks before the night I helped him, I said, Zenjiro, I'm going to be on, on this show. You've been on it before. Any advice? And he said, just be yourself. 
you'll be fine. And then a couple of weeks later, a friend invited me to help Zenjiro. And we worked together for three or four hours on this material. And I gave him a lot of advice on things not to do in English mm. after watching his material. And so I thought, oh, okay, give him some advice. So when he goes to New York, he won't make these mistakes that I was felt like he was making, that he could mm-hmm. be more effective if he didn't do certain things, which is a very sensitive thing to do when you're talking to somebody about material that they've written. You know, helping the best I could. Afterwards, he was very thankful and said, you know, by the way, I know you're going to be on that TV show tomorrow. It was the night before the TV show filmed. And he said, tomorrow, when you go and be on that show, do not do what I told you. Two weeks ago, when you asked me, I just gave you a generic answer because I didn't care. I didn't really know you and I didn't care about you. And I didn't care if you went on the show and succeeded or not. So I just said, oh, be yourself. And I wanted to get out of the conversation as soon as possible. Right. But after all this help you've given me and this really sound advice and the time that you've taken to help me, in all honesty, I want you to not be funny tomorrow. When you go on that show, do not say anything funny. Do not try to be funnier than the host. Just be deadpan, be humble, set him up so that he can be funny but don't try to say anything fun. He said, that's because no matter how hard you try, he will figure out a way to to take the spotlight from you and he will win. No matter how funny you try to be, he will win. That's his personality and it's his show and he doesn't want anybody on the show funnier than him. And he said, I know because I was on there twice and both times I made the mistake of trying to be funny and I've never been asked to be on the show again. And it really wasn't that funny because he was able to flip it so that I look like an idiot. And I was like, no, that's because you are an idiot. He said, that's exactly what you don't want to do tomorrow on that show. Do not say the thing that everybody else would be like, yeah, that's funny. You're right. I am the idiot. Or, you know, it's not a give and take situation. It's a suck it up and take it and be cute situation. Did you take his advice? Did take his advice. And the response from everyone that watched the show was very positive. People said, oh, you were so great. One of my closest friends said that you should be like that all the time. And you could write your own ticket. And I'm like, I I don't think I can do it. I let him say stuff. And earlier I, I said that irony and sarcasm are not commonly thought of as acceptable approaches to humor in Japan. Mm-hmm. Unless you're this guy. Mm. If you're this guy, then you can do whatever you want. You can say whatever you want. You can be as rude and cynical and say innuendos and everybody thinks it's hilarious. But if anybody else does it, or if anybody does it to him, he doesn't like it. the status thing. He can do it because he's at the top. And he goes around and pecks down all the nails that stick up. And everybody watches it and they think it's funny, which is one of the physical props that Japanese comedians and Japanese TV uses is a rubber hammer. And they're always whacking people in the head with a rubber hammer. So there it is. The guy with the hammer gets to punch people in the head, which I don't think is nearly as common as it used to be. But when I was here learning the language and learning how to deal with comedians, the rubber hammer was very common. I never got hit with a rubber hammer, but 
didn't give them that many opportunities to. You also have a, a very wide range of experience in terms of like interpretation, working behind the scenes in the entertainment industry. When did you start translating or interpreting and how did that come about? The first time I remember translating for something was for an improv theater workshop that was taking place in Tokyo. The person who had organized it was doing the simultaneous translator. They brought a famous author from Canada to teach this three-day seminar, mm -hmm. theater sports. Um, Keith Johnstone had been invited to Tokyo to do a two- or three-day improv theater workshop, theater sports workshop, and there was a translator. The organizer was translating, but it was quite intense, and she started to get tired. So somebody suggested that I translate. And I thought, well, I've never done that before. But everybody said, oh, you should try it. I'm sure you can do it. So I sat down next to Keith and started translating. A few hours later, people said, oh, that was great. You did it. And I was kind of like blank. I didn't remember what I had done. It was like I got into this zone of listening and talking, but not thinking. Oh, wow, I can do simultaneous translation. That's cool. And after that, sometimes I would do work as a translator or coordinating for people who came from abroad, the World Cup. So in 2002, I worked for CNN as their field producer slash coordinator slash driver slash everything guy. That required me to do a lot of interpreting for them and translating and interviewing people, interviewing the Japanese soccer players in Japanese for them. So it just kind of organically developed out of being here and working in events and working in TV and film. I don't sell myself or promote myself as a translator. Why not? Well, because if I was going to hire someone, I would hire someone who's better than me. So when people come along and I when I end up doing it, it's usually because there's not a budget to hire somebody better than me. But I always advise people if you, oh, you're going to need a translator and this is how much they cost. Oh, we don't have that. Can you do it? I can, but it's not going to be as good as them. Didn't you end up interpreting for The Last Samurai? I was actually not an interpreter for The Last Samurai. I was the location manager. So it involved working between English and Japanese. The people I was reporting to were <laughs> English speakers from the U.S., but everybody on location that I was working with were primarily Japanese speakers. So I was the go-between between Hollywood and the location in Himeji, which was, in retrospect, it was just a nightmare. It was a nonstop puzzle of, it was logistically challenging how everything was being staged. And when I'm, I'm speaking of the pre-production period, right. getting the location ready for 150 crew and cast to come and film for six days process took months to get all the equipment on location. It was on the top of a mountain that only had a, a little dirt road access. So getting 42 four-ton trucks filled with equipment unloaded and then reloaded on smaller four-wheel drive vehicles that could go up this mountain was just a logistic challenge in itself. That plus the difference in work styles and communication styles between Hollywood and this small town in Japan with the <laughs> Japanese production company in the middle. It was a very challenging 
project and I was right in the middle and I was kind of thrown into the middle without proper regard for the Japanese way of doing things. Hollywood thought they could just come in and do things the Hollywood way since I was working for them. I was the end of the battering ram. Was there any changing the minds of the Hollywood people you were working for? No need to. Just get it done. So basically, no. There was no way of changing their Hollywood mind. Their mind had already been changed by the time I came onto the project because they had originally wanted to shoot here for months. They wanted to do all kinds of things in Japan. I got brought onto the project. It had been whittled down to filming for seven, six days in Japan. And we want to shoot here for six months to six days. And the only reason they stayed shooting in Japan for six days is because the director owned the rights to the story. And he said, unless we shoot in Japan, you're not using my story. Ed Zwick said, we shoot in Japan and we don't shoot. And I know how much you're already in for. So I know you're going to shoot in Japan. So we're shooting in Japan because this is what I always wanted to do. And I'm Ed Zwick. So make it happen. He didn't even say make it happen. He just said, we're going to shoot in Japan. Walk away. They don't care. No excuses. Oh, really? Oh, are you saying that you can't do it? Okay. That guy who said that disappears. And the next day, there's somebody else there. Ed Zwick would never fire anybody. Those kind of people, they're at this, they, they don't walk through a room. They float through a room. The production coordinator came on a tour of the set. And she would say things like, that tree won't be here. That tree will be gone. Not, can we get rid of that tree? Or if it's possible, if that tree could be removed and we could shoot from here, if it's possible. But no, it's like that tree will be gone, you know, and there's people following her, writing stuff down. And I'm like, going, no, that tree won't be gone. No, you know, right, you'll be gone and you won't know. So that stuff, those kind of things happened at a different level. Mm-hmm. I was a little field soldier the uh, officer in the field. And that's kind of like how I felt. But everything got done. But since then, you've done similar jobs for... Um, Coordination for non-Japanese speaking TV and film crews that come to Japan. And do you find the work rewarding? Like, would you recommend it to people? I would recommend working as a bilingual liaison for people coming to Japan to people who have the proper skill set. But I would not recommend that somebody say, I'm going to go learn Japanese so I can become a coordinator for projects like that. I wouldn't recommend it to somebody who's looking for something to do, to learn. Like, oh, if you learn Japanese, then you can do this. I wouldn't recommend that as a goal. But if someone had already had a skill set, yes, you should definitely think about doing this. If you're a problem solver, first of all, you have to be able to accommodate and solve problems on the fly. On top of that, you need to be aware of the cultural differences between both sides. And you need to be fluent in each language. Right. But just being fluent in the language is the reason that I get brought in. Mm -hmm. Because translators just don't cut it. Do you think that there is um, some bias in terms of, for example, when I've looked for work as a translator, I see a lot of advertisements. They want native Japanese speakers and fluent English speakers are fine, but they would much rather have someone who's a native Japanese speaker and a fluent English speaker than a native English speaker and a fluent Japanese speaker. Yes, there's definitely 
advantages to using a native Japanese speaker when dealing with native Japanese speakers. But there's also the advantage, it, it's a real tricky question. It depends on the situation because there are times when it's an advantage to be a, a non native Japanese speaker because you can push things through that a Japanese person could not necessarily push through because of the status and the, you can take advantage of being the outsider to get things done. It's also easier to get things done with certain kinds of people if you're not a second language speaker in Japan. So I will, I will use native Japanese speakers to, to make first contact with places looking to get, say, shooting permission for a venue, for a location. I will have a native Japanese speaker call and make the initial contact, write the email. Last year, I was interviewed for a, a really big project for the Olympics, a hospitality job with hosting Intel's VIP guests coming to Japan to check out Intel infrastructure for the Olympics, a huge project and a very high level position that I was interviewing for. As our 30 minute interview came to the to its end, I was asked, and of course, you write emails in Japanese and everything. You're comfortable with that. You're comfortable with getting, with dealing with high end clients, people in high positions and writing emails to CEOs of companies and things. And I said, no, I don't usually write emails. I call somebody, I dictate a message into a phone and send it to them. And 10 minutes later, it's perfectly written. Emails in Japanese is an art, just mm -hmm. like being able to solve problems on location is an art. And finding right. somebody that both of those, if you find them, I want to know because I want to hire them. I've not yet to find anybody that can do both well enough. And the look I got was, oh, well, you're not getting the job. And sure enough, I didn't get the job. But I know the fact that there's nobody that can do both of those things as well as two people can do it. Because there's just not enough work. And if somebody is that good at getting things done and in a bilingual situation, the, these people from San Francisco just couldn't get their head around it. They had no idea. It's just kind of like the Hollywood people too. They had no idea. And I guess they don't care if it's 100% efficient in the field because they're probably not going to be there. They just want to make sure they don't get complaints back. What I learned from that interview was people don't want the truth. So it's mm -hmm. not just Japan. It's in English as well. People think they want you to answer honestly. They don't want you to answer honestly. They want to, they want to hear the answer that they need to check the boxes to cover themselves. And in Japanese, we call it zuru gashkoi. Zurui is mischievous and kashkoi is clever. Be mischievously clever. And as the performer, I've never had much success or much need for being mischievously clever. I've just been entertaining. And I found that being honest is usually the most entertaining. And if you try to be conniving or mischievous or manipulative, it's not as successful as being honest. So what you're saying is your comedy career has not prepared you for a high-level position interview. No, no. The thing that made me successful as a performer translate into the boardroom. I can see that. So yeah. between being a, a, a field soldier, you know, being out on the field and being in the boardroom. 
two completely different things. I don't think I would be happy in the boardroom. I could see I, that as well. Now, you've been in Japan for so long and you've seen so many foreigners come and go. What do you think is the biggest mistake people who are studying or say they study Japanese make while living in Japan? I think the biggest mistake that foreigners in Japan make is that they're going to be able to do things their way and be successful. To come and take over, you know, do something in Japan that nobody else has done before, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to be successful because I'm me, and I'm going to do it without yielding to making adjustments to the um, to the culture. And then the people that do make adjustments to the culture, they figure out a way to make it work and do what they want to do within the parameters of what this society offers them. And speaking Japanese and paying attention to the cultural cues is one of the things that makes people successful here or able to survive here for a long time. A lot of people who come here think they're going to, they come here thinking that it's this exotic, unique place where they're going to meet some, you know, some life changing, mystical thing. And then they get here and they just realize it's like it was back home, but with these quirky little cultural differences, mm-hmm. they think, well, this isn't as cool as I thought it'd be. I'm leaving. And then mm-hmm. they leave. I think a lot of people come here thinking they're going to make a lot of money. And when they realize yeah. they're not a lot of money, they lose interest. I heard that David Lee Roth was up in Tokyo studying martial arts and living a simple life in a normal apartment above a restaurant or something. I think he might have made a video with Konishiki or the sumo wrestler. I'd seen him on a couple of talk shows in, in Japan a couple of times. One, when he first went to Japan and was like, this is great. This is amazing. It's going to be incredible. And then another one when he was like, ah, you just can't get anything done here, <laughs> which I thought was really, really interesting to see that happen. At that level. Yeah. You know, people do move to Japan thinking, I'm going to learn Japanese and I'm going to make Japan mine and I'm God's gift to this island kind of attitude. And then they realize, oh, maybe I'm not. And then they go somewhere else. Have you ever considered learning a third language and going somewhere else? Have I ever thought about learning other languages? My original plan was to learn five languages in five years. Five shows, travel around the world for about 10 or 15 years doing those shows in different countries. And Japanese was going to be my first language. Study for a year, and then I'll go study it. I was doing it as an exchange student through university. Instead of just coming to Japan to work and learning Japanese on the side, I came here under the disguise of being a serious student. And, you know, oh, and on the on the side, I, I do some shows. My hobby is doing shows on the weekend. I'm a student. I felt that the world was much more receptive to someone who was an ambitious student than just an ambitious business person. Maybe I was a little bit zurugashkoi. Maybe I was a little bit mischievously clever or whatever the word is. There's people like, oh, you're a student. Oh, that's great. Oh, and you're doing a show on the side. Oh, how cute. But little did they know that I was really there to do the show. And the show was making everything possible. So like I can pay for school because I do these shows. That was during the bubble, right? So financially, it was very rewarding what I was doing. Fell into the trap. Whoa, the money trap. 
I've only been here two months. Look at all this money I'm making. Maybe I should study another year. My American university said, no, you have to come back and finish your degree here. Exchange programs are only for a year. And I was calling from the Japanese university's office. So I called the American university and asked them if I could stay. And they said, no, you have to come back. And I said, oh, one moment. And I asked the Japanese university, can I stay another year? And they said, if you keep your grades up and pay your tuition, you can stay as long as you want. Back on with America and said, I'm staying here as an independent next year. You're not getting any of my money. But... After I finish, I'll transfer the credits back and you'll accept them. So I guess you're not a good business person. That's why you're working at a university. Bye. <laughs> and did they accept your credits in the end? You did. Transfer them back. That's their system. But in order to graduate from the university, you have to have X number of hours at that university. So they got their money anyway. And those extra year of credits that I had, when I finally got around to graduating from the university... My advisor kind of laughed and said, look at all these language credits you have. You could get two degrees. So um, I fell into the trap and I thought, wow. I looked at the situation that other people in my field were in in other countries and I compared it to my situation in Japan and I thought, well, why go learn French and German and Spanish and try to compete with people that are doing it there already when I can just stay here in Japan and never have to ride on an airplane to go to a job. I'll just do shows here and optimize the system here. So I, I kind of made a, a very distinct choice. I'm going to become the guy in Japan. I'm going to make Japanese my second language and I'll be able to work in those two languages and that's it. I don't need to learn something else. And as far as like living in a second language, would you be willing to, if your partner demanded that your second language be the dominant language in the house, would you agree to it? Well, it's interesting that you assume that it's not already. Anyone would assume that, but English is the language that I communicate with mostly with my, well, it's interesting. Um, my girlfriend has two daughters are 20 and 17, and we've been together for about 10 years. So I've known the girls since they were young, and they speak quite good English. They speak really good English, actually, but they don't communicate with me in English. Huh. And their mother, my girlfriend and I, mostly speak English together, but there are times when I find it easier to speak Japanese with her because I know that she knows everything that I'm saying in Japanese. And if I do not understand her in Japanese, then I will ask for clarification or confirmation of my understanding. Whereas when we're only speaking English, there are times when I'm not quite sure she understands exactly what I mean. There are times that I definitely do not understand what she is trying to say. Especially when we're texting, she is uh, an avid text messenger, and there are often gaps in the conversation that I ask for clarification as to exactly what is being discussed or agreed upon or asked about. And that's usually when the conversation falls apart because it is perceived that I am belittling her or I'm not paying attention to what she's saying. It's not necessarily a linguistic issue, but mm -hmm. a, a communication style issue. Like a high context style as opposed to low context style. Exactly. So Japanese is a very high context language. 
everybody shares the same cultural experiences. Everyone experiences the same thing pretty much throughout their life. A lot of things go unsaid in Japan. Even the language sentence structure, the subjects are often not included in the conversation. So exactly who is being referred to is not clearly defined in a lot of Japanese sentences,、mm. especially speaking. So it's like who and the Western style of stating your opinion or your desire first, say what you want to say, say why you're saying it, and then say it again. That style is not. Common in Japanese, about ten things, and then casually mention that they want to do something. And out of those ten things, you're supposed to know. Oh, I should be doing number ten, and one through nine were just noise. <laughs> oh, forgive me for not understanding. Their conversations meander. They don't say. Specifically, what it is that is on their mind up front. It's like living in an ivory merchant film. I think was it those old British movies where everyone's very indirect about everything they want. Like was it Remains of the Day and very vague. So, so what are some of your language milestones?、Um, language milestones as a language learner. I remember after about two years feeling like I could say. What was on my mind?、Mm-hmm. I felt like okay, I can speak. I can get through the day without not knowing what to say. That was a big milestone. Dreaming in Japanese, waking、mm-hmm. up. I remember visiting my family in Indiana, and I had fallen asleep on my sister's couch. And in the morning, my family was teasing, and I guess my mother tried to wake me up or give me a blanket. When I was asleep, and I guess I was speaking Japanese to her, half woken state, and I didn't realize. But in the morning, they said that I was speaking Japanese in my sleep, and they were all making fun of me. And I thought, oh wow, I didn't realize that I was speaking at all. I guess we had no idea what you were saying, but we assumed it was I'm hot. I don't need a blanket. Leave me alone.、And、it's like, oh okay, well I really don't remember. So maybe I wasn't speaking Japanese. Maybe I was speaking in tongues, and they assumed it was Japanese because they didn't understand what I was saying. Well, I, I would assume that your Tennessee family would assume you were speaking in tongues first and <laughs> in Japanese. My sister moved to Tennessee after. Oh, okay. In Indiana,、oh, we didn't speak. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Indiana. We weren't speaking in tongues in Indiana. So that was one, you know, milestone dreaming in Japanese. And then I remember one day in a show, I have this bit where if my cell phone would. Were to ring and I would answer it and act like I'm talking to this famous TV show host who、mm-hmm. every day on his show he would ask his guest of the day who would you like me to have on the show tomorrow and then they would say oh call my friend you should have my friend Bob on okay、yeah. well Bob will call and see if he can come on the show tomorrow so they call up Bob and ring 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 and then. Hello, it's me.、I、want you to come on the show tomorrow? Is that okay? And the guy, like, yeah, that's great. See you tomorrow. And they have this catchphrase where they end the conversation, and everybody would always end the conversation with, "I think it's okay." Itomo, which is the name of the show. It's okay to laugh. I think it's okay、right. to laugh. What up, Itomo? So when、mm-hmm. I see them, Itomo, and the conversation ends. So during my show, I would get a call. I answer the phone, but I would actually turn it off. 
But mm-hmm. the people think I'm talking on the phone and be like, oh, no, oh, it's me. No, no, I'm not busy at all. To which the people in the audience are like, what do you mean you're not busy? You're in the middle of a shop. You know, what, what are what are we? We're not important, you know. So a little bit of irony, which supposedly isn't funny in Japan, mm-hmm. but it's done in a way that they like it. And I guess it works. So I would say, oh, no, I'm not busy. No. Oh, no, no, no. Still in Osaka. No. Yeah. It's going to come up tonight. Yeah. Oh, I'm looking forward to it, too. Okay. Eat all ball. <laughs> and just act like, you know, and everybody in the audience is like, did he just get a call from that famous TV show? No way. That happens at, at 12.55 every day. It's not 12.55. Oh, that wasn't him. I would just say, eat all ball. And, and I look at the audience and you know, say it's one of these days one of these days so i had already done that bit in the show other time i would act like it was I'm like okay no no i'm doing shows no really i'm doing shows yeah i'm here no okay all right got it some milk and some pickles okay i'd hang up say that was my mom supposed to get some milk and pickles on the way home but i didn't say that i just said this that was my mom hang up the phone i go back to doing the show because everybody kind of laughed they're not laughed as in a humorous way but like oh okay your mom called yeah you gotta and and then a minute or so later i went so who believed that i was on the phone with my mom and a lot of the people were like yeah we we believed you I said didn't you see me think it was odd that my mother and i were speaking japanese to each other and they were like, no, no, actually, yeah, that is kind of weird. I said, ladies and gentlemen, do you not realize that in this 20, 30 minutes that we've been together, you have seen me talking to my mother on the phone in Japanese and you didn't think it was strange. That means you accept me as you think that I speak Japanese in my daily life with my mom and you don't think that's weird. That means this is like a epic milestone in my language not just Mm -hmm. that but you've accepted me as like a guy who would speak to his mother in japanese on the phone and they were like and it wasn't a big crowd it's like 50 60 people maybe at night holidays there was this vibe through the audience was like yeah so it was this feeling of oh that's right you're not japanese you're a foreigner he saw me as this guy doing a show in japanese and like funny this guy's hilarious Oh, yeah, by the way, he's American. He's a white guy from America. That was a big, huge milestone. I felt like that was a huge turning point. And that was about, I would say, after being here for 10 years or so. Wow. Maybe not even eight, nine years into being in Japan. And that was a really eye-opening experience. Like, wow, that was cool. Yeah. As soon as I opened my mouth, mm-hmm. I remember having being very frustrated when I first came to Japan. Many years, I felt like an outsider, trying to get taxis. Taxis wouldn't stop. People would be, oh, you know, I don't speak English and kind of dismissive. 
or trying to avoid communicating with me. Mm -hmm. But then I slowly realized it stopped happening. I came to the conclusion that as soon as you open your mouth and speak and people notice that it's very fluent and natural, oh, okay, I can communicate with this guy. Don't think a thing about it. Non-Japanese people complain that I'm speaking to you in Japanese. Why don't you speak to me back in Japanese? Mm. Well, it's because your Japanese is crap. Your, your Japanese isn't good enough for me to feel comfortable speaking to you in Japanese. So, and language learners don't like that. So I guess for your listeners, if mm -hmm. people come to Japan and they're frustrated by I'm speaking Japanese to you, why aren't you trying to speak Japanese back to me? Mm -hmm. It could be that they just can't be bothered because your Japanese isn't good enough mm -hmm. or whatever language it is that you're trying to communicate in and you're frustrated because the people that you're trying to speak to won't speak to you that in that language. It's like, well, maybe you need to study more because people often forget that when they're learning the language, everybody they meet isn't there to tutor them. Right. Yep. So there are some milestones. I'd like to talk a lot. You did great. Yeah, I know. That's amazing. Thank you so much for doing this, Brian. What's my favorite word in my native language? What's your favorite word in your native language? Oh, Spring. my favorite word, probably. It's something my dad says, which I think doesn't translate well in other languages. Like he always says, ah, it's neither here nor there. Uh, and it's just such a weird way to say it doesn't matter. Yeah, that is a hard one to translate into Japanese. Yeah, because when you're translating it, you say it doesn't matter. It sounds like, no, 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 tell me. What does it mean? And you're like, it means it doesn't matter. In Japanese, maybe. Yeah. What's your favorite word in Japanese? Twinky. <laughs> It just sounds Tinkerbell like atmosphere, winky. Winky. Yeah, that's a good word in Japanese. Yeah. What's yours? I don't know. There's so many words. I had to pick a favorite. Ah, top 10. Mm. Mm. That's it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I miss that Japanese people do that I really appreciate? It's when they're disgusted, they click. Thing. Such a mild slight, but there's so much irritation behind it. I remember hearing it on the train all the time. I'm too busy um, complaining. <laughs> I can't hear it over my own voice. <laughs> this has been great. Thanks so much, Brian. I would love to continue talking. This recording of a guy calling in to the cable company over and over again and leaving messages, a whole series of messages. Got this, you know, country bumpkin accent. Uh huh. Oh my God. Cocksuckers, you charge me all this fucking money and you don't do fucking shit. It's fucking, I just drive me fucking crazy. I can't fucking believe it. Jesus fucking Christ. All I want to do is watch my fucking cable. Hello, me again. Am I, when are you going to fucking call me back? For fuck's sake. Fuck. Me again. <laughs> uh, my cable's back on. Thank you very much. 